another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we use this time spending the entire year 2014 trying to uncover, untangle, and understand the practice of Mormon polygamy and see how it affects our lives today. Today, we're going to be talking about the history of Relief Society. I've been wanting to do this for a long, long time, but it required a lot of research and a lot of study because there's a lot of information. In fact, I'm I'm toying with the idea of next year doing a series on the history of Relief Society because there are so, so many important things that we need to talk about. This is just going to be a primer. I have, I've been bugging Jill Durr to come on the podcast, so hopefully I can get her to come on the podcast because she literally has written the book or contributed to writing the book about the history of the Relief Society. And I've got some other great scholars lined up, so hopefully we can talk about that. But I just wanted to to give this episode as a primer to help you understand because it's absolutely tied to polygamy. It's a huge part of the history of polygamy. And while we're not going to be addressing polygamy specifically and directly, it is a very much a part of this. Another thing I want to say is I was at the DI uh, Desert Industries, and I always look for books there. And um, I got this book called The History of Relief Society. It was published in 67, I believe. And, you know, it sat on my shelf for a long time because I thought, oh, that just looks like a church manual. It doesn't look like it's going to bring anything new to the table. And I have to tell you, this this book is a jewel. It's a gem. It was commissioned by the, the Relief Society uh, presidency in the 60s. And it was, it was basically commissioned by President Amy Brown Lyman. And then on the committee was Belle S. Spafford and Marion C. Sharp. And they commissioned this book. So it's kind of like the 60s equivalent on Daughters of My Kingdom. And I was, I'm just super impressed with it because this is actually history. It's not just anecdotal history. I mean, it's fantastic. It's one of the only church books that I'm aware of where they have like five yearbook size pages of just pictures of women, like we would get, you know, of our leaders in general conference, like a big spreadsheet of, Photos of women who have served in the presidency. There are documentations, there are scans, there are beautiful paintings. I actually think that this is far better done than Daughters of My Kingdom. It's far more comprehensive, and it's just got some great stuff. Of course, it leaves out some important details, but um, a lot of history has surfaced since the 60s, and so we know a lot more, but um, I would recommend this book. I'm going to go ahead and recommend that. I'm going to recommend Women of Covenant. I'm going to be quoting from that quite heavily. That's Jill Durr's book that she helped contribute with some other authors. And uh, also Mormon Enigma gives us a lot about the history of Relief Society. There's also a fantastic, fantastic essay, which I think you all need to read. It was published in Dialogue. I've got that linked on the site. And I will be quoting from that heavily because the research there from Richard Jensen is fantastic. So with that said, let's get into the primer of Relief Society. In the spring of 1842, we know that there was this almost legendary story, this mythos of women getting together, taking place 
It involves Sarah Granger Kimball and her seamstress, Margaret A. Cook. They were sitting together discussing how to combine their efforts to sew clothing for some of the workers of the temple at the time. They were trying to figure out how to put their heads together and clothe and feed these workers who were building the temple. They wanted to help build the temple, and this is how they felt like they could do it. They thought, you know, if we could organize and get our neighbors involved, maybe we could really do something here. And so they formed a lady society. That's what they wanted. Now, these societies were not unique to Mormonism. They were very Victorian in nature. There were all kinds of ladies' societies, sort of benevolent societies devoted to charities. If you're a woman of status and class, you were in a society of some sort, which was like a club where you wanted to help the poor and the needy. Sarah Granger Kimball asked Eliza R. Snow to write a constitution for this lady society and to write down some bylaws because every proper society has bylaws. And they submitted it to Joseph Smith, who was the president of the church at the time, for review. Joseph Smith looks at it, he looks at these documents, and he says that these are the best he had ever seen. But then he also says something a little bit condescending. He says, but this is not what you want. This might be the best uh, bylaws I've ever seen, but this is not what you want. Tell the sisters their offering is accepted of the Lord, and he has something better for you than a written constitution. I will organize the women under the priesthood after the pattern of the priesthood. So he says, listen, this is great for a worldly organization, but if you want something real, really good, I'm going to organize you after the pattern of the priesthood. So 20 women gather on Thursday, March 17th, 1842, in the famous second-story meeting room of the Red Brick Store in Nauvoo. It's said that Joseph Smith, John Taylor, Willard Richards sat on a platform, and we can see this in paintings, on the upper end of the room with the women facing them. They sing, The Spirit of God like a fire is burning. And John Taylor opens the meeting with a prayer. The women in attendance were Emma Hale Smith, Sarah M. Cleveland, Phoebe Ann Hawks, Elizabeth Jones, Sophia Packard, Felindia Merrick, Martha McBride Knight, Desdemona Fulmer, Elizabeth Ann Whitney, Lenora Taylor, Bathsheba W. Smith, Phoebe M. Wheeler, Elvira A. Cowles, or Holmes, Margaret A. Cook, Athelia Robinson, Sarah Granger Kimball, Eliza R. Snow, Sophia Robinson, Nancy Rigdon, and Sophia R. Marks. Now notice some of those names, if you've been following along the series, a lot of them would be married to Joseph Smith. Several of them would be married to Joseph Smith. Later on, additionally, eight women who were not present at the time would be admitted into membership. Sarah Higby, Thersra Cahoon, Keziah A. Morrison, Marinda N. Hyde, Abigail Allred, Mary Snyder, Sarah S. Granger, and Cynthia Ann Eldridge. So these women are sitting in the room above the red brick store. Joseph Smith is there going to counsel them. Joseph Smith says that the object of the society was that sisters might provoke the brethren to good works in looking to the wants of the poor, searching after objects of charity, and administering to their wants, to assist by correcting the morals of strengthening the virtues of the female community, and save the elders the trouble of rebuking, that they may give their time to other duties and company in their public teaching, end quote. And by the way, you can read all of these in the Release Society Minutes that are now published online. 
it's really cool to go and see these words written in the hands of people like Eliza R. Snow, who at the time was a secretary, writing a lot of this stuff down. Smith would also propose that women elect a presiding officer and then to choose two counselors. He's kind of organizing this after the pattern of his own leadership. Of course, Emma Smith is elected unanimously as president. She chooses Sarah Cleveland and Elizabeth Ann Whitney as her two counselors. Um, then something interesting happens. This is something that we don't like to talk about, but John Taylor then ordains the women, and he does so. And I choose the word, I'm not using the word ordain the women lightly. He ordains the women. This is their wording, not mine. Then they had to come up with the name. So they have the structure in place, they have the people, but what are they going to name the thing? It was originally a lady society, but that's boring and that's very vague. So someone proposes that the Benevolent Society is the name, and they all say, that's great, there's no opposition and the vote carries. However, Emma Smith starts to say, wait a minute, I have an objection to that. She likes the term relief, somehow incorporated, because she felt like it better reflected their goal. She said, we are going to do something extraordinary. And it's not just going to be like this run-of-the-mill benevolent societies. We're going to do something different. So they they discuss it, and they come up with the name the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo. Joseph Smith offers $5, which is about $122 today, in gold to commence the fun of the Relief Society, and the men leave the room. This is where they unanimously elect Eliza R. Snow as a secretary and Phoebe M. Wheeler as assistant secretary and Elvira A. Cowles as treasurer. Emma Smith would say that, quote, each member should be ambitious to do good and seek out to relieve the distressed. And then they all add their donations. It's like this membership due, so they all add it. And you can see in the minutes who gives what, how much money they give. After that is done, the men return, and uh, John Taylor and Richards also make their donations. They sing, Come, Let Us Rejoice, and then the meeting adjourns. So they've, they have created the first Relief Society. The following Thursday, they have another meeting, and Joseph Smith wrote a quote, I attended by request the Female Relief Society, whose object is the relief of the poor, the destitute, the widow, and the orphan, and the exercise of all benevolent purposes. We feel convinced that the concentrated efforts, the condition of the suffering of the poor, of the stranger, and the fatherless will be ameliorated, end quote. Now I'm going to read a part from another book that I think you should pick up. It's actually all the, all the text is online on Signature Books website. It's Women in Authority, compiled and edited by Maxine Hinks. This is written by Linda King Newell in her essay called The Historical Relationship of Mormon Women in the Priesthood. She says, quote, When Joseph Smith organized the Navarro Relief Society on the 17th March, 1842, he gave women an autonomy currently unknown in the church. There is ample evidence that Joseph envisioned the Relief Society as an organization for women parallel to priesthood hierarchy for men. He instructed sisters to elect their own president, who would then select her counselors. Then he would, quote, ordain them to preside over the society, just as the presidency preside over the church. If any officers, officers are wanted to carry out the designs of the institution, let them be appointed and act apart as deacons, teachers, etc., are among us, end quote. Elizabeth Ann Whitney moved 
that Emma Smith would be made president. Sophia Packard seconded it, and Emma chose Elizabeth Ann Whitney and Sarah M. Cleveland as counselors. Joseph then, quote, read the revelation to Emma Smith from the Doctrine and Covenants and stated that she would ordained that she was ordained at the time the revelation was given, which would have been July 1830, to expound the scriptures to all and to teach the female part of the community. He continued by saying that she was designated, quote, an elect lady because she was elected to preside. John Taylor then, quote, laid his hands on the head of Mrs. Cleveland and ordained her to be a counselor to Emma Smith. He followed the same procedure in ordaining Elizabeth Whitney. Susie Young Gates later emphasized that these women were not only set apart, but ordained. And Susie Gates Young was, Susie Young Gates was Brigham Young's daughter. They were not only set apart like we are today, but they were ordained. The use of ordained seems to link these accounts to priesthood powers, although I have found no records of the women claiming this. Still, at the third meeting, 30th of March, 1842, Joseph addressed the women, the women and told them, quote, that the society should move according to the ancient priesthood. He was going to make of this society a kingdom of priests, as in Enoch's day, as in Paul's day. End quote. So this is from Linda K. Newell, her research. Uh, she goes on to, to talk about the arguments of how women were ordained. The whole book, Women in Authority, ties early priesthood ordinances and priesthood authority, actual authority, to women. It's, it's very, very worth reading. This new organization that they develop becomes super popular. I mean, the saints have this feverish desire to build a kingdom, and now women actually have an organized way to do this. Not just an organized way within the church, but it's very considered posh and fashionable in society to have something like this. They needed to find a meeting place for such a large and growing group. So Emma Smith divides the the groups for the meeting, and they would come up with four wards. So in Navu, there would be four wards. So it's funny to think that a lot of the ward organization was actually at Emma Smith's direction. We don't think about that now. Emma and her counselors consider, continued to preside over these groups. They had visiting committees that were appointed who determined the needs of each ward. We see early visiting teaching. Young mother Sarah P. Rich, wife of Charles C. Rich, recalled, quote, We then as a people were united and were more likely family than strangers, end quote. We know that by March of 1844, the membership totaled 1,331 women. So from 20 members to 1,331 women, that's super, super fast. Within six months, more than a 1,000 women of the 12,000 total population had voluntarily enrolled. So Relief Society was not something you just, like, you turned 18 and you joined. It was an actual membership. We know that they only met during the summer in 1843 and activity declined. A lot of stuff is going on in the church at that time. And in 1844, there were four meetings held in March. But this is where it gets complicated. This is where polygamy comes into involved. Emma Smith is struggling personally and privately. We know this. We know this from listening to the earlier, earlier episodes of Joseph's Wives and about, you know, the interview I did with John Hamer with, about Emma Smith's life. So you can look this up. Emma is against plural marriage at this time. She sees the relief site as a platform to further her protests. 
The last recorded meeting of the Relief Society in Nauvoo was held on March 16, 1844. And I'm just going to read from this nice History of Relief Society book written in the 60s I told you about. This is how they describe it in their paragraph called The Final Days of Nauvoo. Quote, Thus ends the minutes of the Female Relief Society Book of Records, both the first meeting on March 17, 1842, and the last meeting recorded two years later took place in the lodge room over President Joseph Smith's brick store. The society had grown from a membership of 18 to... 1341. The tempo of events was quickening and conditions were becoming increasingly grave. The culmination had reached on June 27, 1844, when the prophet Joseph and his faithful devoted brother Hiram were slain in Carthage jail and thus sealed their testimonies with their blood. On the Quorum of the Twelve, the President Brigham Young, as its head, devolved the leadership of the church. All other interests were put aside and every effort bent towards finishing the temple before the saints would be driven to the west. The fall of 1845 found all Nauvoo converted into a vast mechanic shop. Every nerve was strained to, to provide wagons for the westward trek. Brigham Young and the Apostles labored day and night in the temple from December 10, 1845 until they left Nauvoo in February 1846 in order that as many saints as possible might receive their endowments. Among this number were many of the leading sisters who had been members of the Female Relief Society. The farewell days and the last hours that the women of Nauvoo spent in their beloved homes were recalled in later years and told again and again to pioneer women in the valleys of the mountains who shared a love of home. The sisters in Nauvoo, even as the loaded wagons lined the familiar streets, took a last look at the walls of the windows and the doorways and the fireplaces and the cupboards. Many treasures had to be left in the abandoned homes of the river city. One sister who could not take her melodeon touched the keys lovingly before she turned away. Another sister carefully watered all her window plants and set them on the floor away from the drafts that would blow them through an unheated house. A proud English woman, the very last thing polished a doorknob, and many women swept up all the floors for one last sad time. So that's that's how it's prescribed here. And you'll notice some something says there's just like this throwaway line that the that the Relief Society ends and then the saints move west. That is true. There's nothing not true about that. But what they don't tell is why why the society ended. There was a huge gap between the last meeting in 1844, and then, you know, the saints coming across and arriving in the Utah Valley in 47. Davis Bitten, Thomas G. Alexander, in their A to Z Book of Mormonism, they say that the last recorded meeting of the Relief Society was held on March 16, 1844. And they kind of go on to say that in the weeks before this ends, there was a man named Orismus F. Boswick, and he was circulating rumors about the about Hiram Smith's practice of polygamy. So remember, we know that Emma is struggling personally, privately with this. She knows that Joseph is taking on wives. She's given him permission to do so. She is not aware that the women in her uh, sort of leadership roles, her own friends, are also wives of Joseph Smith. She doesn't know to the extent. She sees the Relief Society as a way to do this. So rumors are circulating, and Hiram Smith is now practicing it. W.W. Phelps writes a refutation of rumors entitled, quote, A Voice of Innocence from Nauvoo. And this is important. Emma Smith reads The Voice of Innocence on March 9th, 1844. Remember, the last meeting is, you know, about a week later, two weeks later. 
So before the Relief Society ends, she reads this refutation of Voice of Innocence. This is what Joseph Smith commissioned W.W. Phelps to write, to tell the world, we're not polygamists, we're not practicing polygamy. She explains to them that they need to lend their collective voice to the proclamation that countered Orismus Boswick's slander of Hiram Smith. She says, listen, read the Voice of Innocence. This says we are not living this principle you need, we need to use this organization to shut this down because this is shutting, this is hurting the credibility of the church. They are coming at my family. They're coming at the church. We need to shut this down. Of course, she reads it. She receives unanimous positive vote from the women who were, quote, willing to receive the principles of virtue, keep the commandments of God, and uphold the president in putting down iniquity. Now, the way that it is said, the voices of innocence, is very interesting in its doublespeak. On the one hand, it's condemning polygamy and calling it iniquity and things like that, things that Emma Smith could get on board with. But on the other hand, it's using this sort of language that would be code word to Joseph Smith's wives. They would know that they were living the higher law. So when Emma Smith was talking about polygamy, it didn't mean them. Because they were living, uh, they were living cel- the celestial law. They were not living this degraded polygamy. Emma Smith told the women, quote, It is high time for mothers to watch over their daughters and exhort them to keep the path of virtue. She then read the quote of the First Presidency's original letter that the Relief Society founded in 1842. Quote, We therefore warn you and forewarn you, we do not want anyone to believe anything is coming from us contrary to the old established morals and virtues and scriptural laws. All persons pretending to be authorized by us are and will be liars and base imposters, and you are authorized to denounce them as such. Whether they are prophets, seers, or revelators, patriarchs, twelve apostles, you are alike culpable and shall be damned for such an evil practice. End quote. So she says, look, they're even saying that they can mess up. So if a prophet himself has told you to engage in these iniquities, you don't have to listen to them. Later on in the, in the afternoon, Emma would emphasize that that the church had publicly denounced itself opposed to plural marriage in the Doctrine and Covenants and reiterated that the Relief Society's original charge was to root out iniquity. She says, listen, we established this group to root out iniquity. Iniquity is plural marriage. Hide your daughters. Keep them away. Do not listen to prophets who tell you otherwise. She then presents both the Voice of Innocence and the Presidency's letter, stating that the two documents contain the principles that the society had started upon. But she was sorry to say that all had not adhered to them. She referred to Joseph's original charge to search out iniquity. Emma reminded the women that she was the president of the society by the sealing authority of Joseph Smith. The Relief Sediments record, quote, If there ever was any authority on earth to search out iniquity, she had had it and had it yet, end quote. So she says, listen, I know it's confusing and we're not all adhering to this, but I have authority and you need to listen to me. Emma urges the women to follow the teachings of Joseph Smith and taught them to only listen to the things that he taught from the stand, sort of implying that private teachings should be disregarded. So if Joseph Smith came to you and approached you privately, do not listen to those. But if he's preaching on the stand, we can listen to that. We sort of see this prophet speaking as prophet sort of rhetoric beginning to happen. She emphasized that those were Joseph's words, that if they, that Joseph was saying that his words on the pulpit trumped his words privately. This would be the last meeting of the Relief Society. When Emma had the women take a public vote and raise their hands in support of virtue, she caused quite a stir. 
You know, everyone supports her publicly. No one is going to get, you know, no one's going to stand up and oppose her, even though you can tell that would have been an uncomfortable meeting for the women in the meeting. Now, we do know that the men heard about this and they were not happy about it. Church President John Taylor explained that, quote, the reason why the Relief Society did not continue from the first organization was that Emma Smith, the president, taught the sisters that the principle of celestial marriage as taught in practice of Joseph Smith was not of God, end quote. The official history of the Church Relief Society says that the reasons that the meeting stopped were, quote, the Relief Society meetings were suspended in 1844 due to the various calamities which befell the saints. At the Relief Society's sesquicentennial, Sherry Dew wrote that, quote, By 1844, Relief Society members exceeded 1,300, but after the martyrdom and with increasing persecution, Brigham Young decided to defer operations of the society and it ceased to function. End quote. That is kind of the story that we tell. Listen, there was a lot of persecution. Joseph would die and they had to move west. That is true. But we're not understanding the struggle and the absolute importance that polygamy played in it. Emma Smith began to use the Relief Society as a platform, and some argue she had this in mind all along, to use this as a platform to shut down the things that her husband was doing. She didn't like it. Historian John Hamer notes, quote, It's not that the Relief Society was suspended. The Relief Society that existed in the early church in Nauvoo ceased to exist, end quote. What he is referring to is the fact that we like to say, oh, you know, we we suspended it while well, we went west, and then it came back again. John is right. The original organization of the Relief Society would not be the same ever again. It was just, it was different. Historian Richard Jensen says that it's most likely that church leaders, the Brighamite church leaders who came west, had lost confidence in Emma as a leader. And we hear that from John Taylor's quote. Emma now is preaching this. I'm sure the women went and told the leaders many of them who were married to the leaders, and said, Emma is making us sustain this. She's saying we have to root it out. I'm confused. Whose authority do I listen to? And the men were like, no, 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 no. Emma Smith is wrong. She's preaching against Joseph Smith. Of course, Joseph is martyred. They were taken into custody and killed by a mob at Carthage Jail on June 27, 1844. And after their death, church members focused on completing the Navu Temple and performing ordinances before leaving the city. So there's a lot of chaos. And it makes sense that uh, Emma wouldn't be meeting with these women. She is struggling now at this point to fight over land and property rights with Brigham Young. The church is trying to, the LDS church is trying to wrest power away from Emma at this point. After Joseph Smith's death, Brigham Young, who would be the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, denounced any attempts of Latter-day Saint women to, quote, meddle in the affairs of the kingdom of God. He would say that such meddling contributed to the martyrdom. So he blames, he kind of blames Emma. This is a, this is an indirect so- sort of subtle accusation to Emma. He firmly announces that he would take the initiative at reestablishing relief societies when he wanted them. Here's his quote. He says, when I want sisters or the wives of the members of the church to get up relief society, I will summon them to my aid. But until that time, let them stay at home. And if you see females huddling together, vet the concern. So, um, Brigham Young is saying, listen, women are the problem. Women organizing this is their fault. And if you see them organizing together, you come tell me because this is an issue. 
This, of course, highlights the struggle and the resentment Brigham felt at Emma's opposition to the practice. That also tells me, personally, that Joseph was resentful as well and concerned about Emma's opposition. It caused him a lot of problems, and Brigham Young saw himself being a loyal friend to Joseph in his opposition to Emma. When Relief Society Secretary Eliza R. Snow joined the Saints in the Exodus West in 1846, she would carry the Relief Society books of records with her. And these are what we have today. You can go look at a replica in the Church History Library downtown. Although these women would no longer meet in official capacity, they would absolutely meet informally. Um, there was this profusion of women's meetings at winter's quarter. So in, in the spring of 1847 and the fall and then the first months of 1848, small groups of women would meet in private homes, and this is where they would bless each other and often exercise their spiritual gifts. And we talk about this a little bit in the episode of Winter Quarters. These women were getting together. They were healing each other, speaking in tongues. Eliza R. Snow wrote in her journal, quote, "...had a rejoicing time through the outpouring of the Spirit of God, all hearts comforted." She talks about that in describing a meeting she had with some of her fellow sisters. So there's no formal organization at this point, but procedures were sort of well-defined. They had women presiding at various meetings, and I'm not using that word lightly. Women considered themselves presiding at these meetings. These unofficial meetings would end the spring of 1848, several months after the women had made the trek across the plains of Utah. Remember, they get there, they're, they're really worried about organizing their homes, they're getting lots from Brigham Young. Uh, they're still meeting as sisters, but it's a lot less organized. You know, historian Richard Jensen says that the most frequent meetings were happening while Brigham Young and other church officials were traveling, which sort of suggests that their absence made the needed formula to comfort and encourage one another more acute. Or everyone knew that Brigham didn't like the sisters getting together. <laughs> Women knew their meetings were being the blame for this trek west. There was this this burden, this pressure on it. And I do think that Brigham sort of carries this resentment with him for a long time that women, women meaning Emma, that the Relief Society was the downfall of the church. So he's not a fan. And so women had to be careful. They didn't meet secretively, but they met carefully to make it, you know, not seem like this formal organization. As the saints would come to the Great Basin and and establish their homes, more formal meetings start to gradually emerge after things get settled. There was a female council of health that was established in 1841. These were really cool. At first, they were uh, not gendered. They were men and women would meet, but they realized that women in Victorian times didn't like to talk about health concerns amongst the men, and so they they sort of organized an auxiliary female council and expanded it to include any woman that was interested in health care. Phoebe Angel was appointed president and treasurer on September 17, 1851, with Patty Sessions and Susanna H. Lemoncott Richards as a counselor. Members of the female council heard lectures by local physicians. They discussed the use of faith and herbs in healings. There's a sort of Thomasonian medicine going around at the time where they take herbs to heal. And they they didn't just talk about that. They talked about female fashions. Um, they spoke and sang in tongues. They did a lot of spiritual blessings and interchange. So it wasn't just health-based. It was very spiritually health-based. 
they would generally meet, this health council would generally meet about twice a month and um, it would grow. There's records that show that they met in the old tabernacle, which means that there was a considerable amount of people involved. In November of 1852, the female council of health appointed representatives to all but two of the 19 wards in Salt Lake City to provide for the health needs of the poor. So now they start to focus on more benevolent needs again, on focusing on the health of the poor. There were other needs that started arising, not just health needs and, you know, poverty, but Brigham Young is starting to need more help. He's getting more inspiration, not really specific to the authorization of a women's organization, but he sees the use and need of sisters organizing. Of course, he starts interacting with the indigenous people of Utah. We have Utes, Paiutes, Shoshone. They're all in the Salt Lake Valley, and Brigham Young is very interested in them, not only for safety and sustainability, but, I mean, they find a common enemy against the U.S. government. Brigham Young takes the scriptures, the Book of Mormon, very seriously, as did other saints, in which they saw Native Americans as you know, from the house of Israel, but they had fallen because of sin into a degraded state and that it was the saints' responsibility to bring them out of the degraded state. And I want to point this out because when we talk about people of color in history, especially in Mormon history, it's important to distinguish that different races were treated differently. So um, people of African descent were considered a whole different um, set of people. They were, they had the curse of Cain. Theirs was inherent. Theirs had something to do with being fence-sitters in the pre-existence. And then we have sort of Latin Americans, we have any of the indigenous tribes in Utah, and sometimes the Polynesian saints were considered Lamanites who were actually born white, or their ancestors were born white, but because of the fall in the Book of Mormon, because of sin, could be changed, and thus being righteous could change their skin back. I mean, they actually really believe this. We have quotes later on, up until the 1960s, of Native American people living more righteously and their skin turning a different color. I just want to point out that there is a distinction between them and uh, people of African descent because I think that's important when we talk about people of color, that black people were severely, severely prejudiced against uh, indigenous people absolutely as well, too, but they were colonized in a more benevolent sort of way. So this idea begins to plague Brigham Young, and he sees this as his calling. He would say, quote, My mind is continually upon the stretch, and the Spirit is upon me all the time, and these are my thoughts and meditations. To say that is the use to send missionaries to all the world to convert the world. While we have a tribe of Israel in our midst, which we are called upon to save and redeem from their degradation and misery and make them acquainted with the light and the glory of the gospel of their fathers. But instead of this, many have the appearance of only to wish them dead. This mission is near when the Lord will require at the hand of this people to save this portion of Israel. So Brigham Young really said, listen, you want these guys to go away, you want these Indians to go away, but really it's our mission to save them. He would make several sermons about this. It became this urgent goal. In October 1853, he would say, quote, The time has come. If you will find a man to preside in Salt Lake City, I will go. I say, turn to the house of Israel now. End quote. Two days later, he would issue a call in general conference to two dozen individuals to serve as missionaries among the Indians in the Great Basin. 
The saints, he declared, had been driven from Nauvoo to the west so that they might preach the gospel to the Indians. The missionaries' first concern should be to civilize them, to teach them to work, and to improve their conditions by your utmost faith and diligence, end quote. Then he sends an epistle to the church. He says, quote, The time has come for the leaven of salvation to be offered to the remnants of the house of Israel that dwell on the continent of America. He really feels called to do this. So he sent, began sending Indian missionaries. We know this about Jacob Hamblin, who is an Indian missionary. But he wants the women to be involved as well. So on op- January 24, 1854, in response to Brigham Young's call to assist these Native Americans, women from several Salt Lake City wards decide to organize a, quote, society of females for the purpose of making clothing, and clothing for Indian women and children. Two weeks later, after they decide to do this, in February 9, 1854, they formally organize an association remembered as the Indian Relief Society. And this is the dialogue article I'm talking about. If you go to the site, you can read about the Indian Relief Society. It's fascinating. Matilda Dudley was elected president and treasurer, Mary Hawkins and Mary Bird as counselor, Louisa R. Taylor as secretary, and Amanda Barnes-Smith as assistant secretary. Twelve women, these are all white women, were listed as charter members. These women would be poor themselves, so they didn't have a lot of material goods, but they felt that the need of Native Americans exceeded their own. Over the next four months, their efforts would be to mainly clothe the Indians, especially the Indian women. There's this great quote where the the brethren say, listen, I think missionaries wrote in the Desert News, that you need to donate your clothing, quote, especially shirts, to help cover the nakedness of the Indians, especially the women. They didn't quite know what to do with some of the tribes there. Parley P. Pratt wrote a hymn that they would sing at this meeting, which I, it's, the title is called, Oh, Stop and Tell Me, Red Man. And uh, I'll read you some lines from this. Quote, Before your nation knew us some thousand moons ago, our fathers fell in darkness and wandered to and fro, and long they lived by hunting instead of work and arts, and so our race has dwindled to idle Indian hearts. Yet hope within us lingers, and if the Spirit spoke, he'll come for your redemption and break your Gentile yoke, and all your captive brothers from every clime shall come and quit their savage customs to live with God at home, end quote. So this is a theme in the Utah period and up until, gosh, the 1970s, this idea that Indians who are Lamanites are degraded because of sin. You know, the Utah Indian conflict was was rough. Paiutes were especially starving and poor because because they had endured hundreds of years of captivity by Ute captors who were also violently traumatized by the Spanish colonization of America. So Brigham was thinking that these people are acting this way, they were acting poor, they're acting violent because of sin. And it doesn't really account the history of the Indian slave trade, colonization, their land and culture being erased. The Paiutes were often made up of um sort of pieced together slave slave tribes they were often um sold and resold and captured and raided it was very very violent 
But the Mormons at this time saw this as their calling, that if they could just civilize them, that was their calling to bring them back. And it's, you know, it's a benevolent sort of colonization to, to be able to do this. Um, we know that this Relief Society starts. So Brigham Young heads south. He decides to, to make this his mission. He's going to really start to organize and combine efforts with the indigenous tribes. At Fillmore and Parowan, he, er, he challenged the saints to overcome their aversion to Indians, mingle with them and teach them. He would say, quote, we have a con- considerable pill to swallow. I am sure there are women present who have spoken in tongues, prophesying that they would have to go among the Lamanites and instruct them to sew, knit, wash, and perform all domestic work. And the men have said that they were going to preach to the Lamanites. I ask you now, you are going to swallow your faith and eat up your own revelations and persecute these poor degraded beings who are forsaken of God. Now I tell you the time has come that you will have to carry out that which you have seen. You have seen in years and years and make them honorable, end quote. Brigham would say that the Lamanites um, would be converted to the gospel if not for the foolishness of the whites. So he's he's preaching, he's exhorting, he's threatening, he's telling people, you get your act together. The efforts are not very successful, but they're trying. So Brigham says it's the fault of the white people. If the white people were not so wicked, not so lazy that this would come. Um, he, he made a specific proposal, kind of reminiscent of the Nauvoo organization or of the Relief Society, where he says, quote, I propose to the sisters in this congregation to form themselves into a society to relieve the poor brethren and sustain them. We need not to have a poor family. I propose to the women to clothe the Lamanite children and women to cover their nakedness. All the Lamanites will be numbered with this kingdom in a very few years. They will be as zealous as any other. The sisters should meet in their own wards and it will do them good. End quote. So Brigham Young sees that these women have organized this, this Indian Relief Society ward. And I'll tell you about this. Um, in Parowan specifically, uh, in 1855, they were able to organize a lot of stuff. Um, here's a report of the assignment giving, giving you a glimpse of what they accomplished. Tom Whitney, who was an Indian, was set apart to as chief as these Paiutes, and Aunt Mary Smith, Sister Meeks, West, and Fisher were set apart as nurses and teachers to the females to teach them their organization, the taking care of children, and to nurse them according to Revelation, that is, by laying on of hands, anointed with mild herbs. The average Indian Relief Society produced $70 worth of Indian goods, representing about 50 items of clothing and bedding. At the same time, the five most productive wards contributed an average of $182 in goods, amounting to about 90 items from each ward. In all, the Indian Relief Societies contributed nearly 900 items of clothing, most of which were sewn specifically for the Indians by the women themselves. In 1854, that's pretty impressive. But it wasn't good enough. The Indians would not stay in these societies long. They would take the clothes. And some scholars argued that it developed a sort of handout culture from Paiutes. They were not interested in, in sort of integrating into Mormon culture. They thought we can go to the Mormons and the Mormons will give us things. Remember, the Paiutes were starving. They were living on terrible junk land and were very, very poor. So this organization didn't work the way that it wanted. Brigham Young kind of, you know, broke up the official Relief Society or the official Indian Relief Society and encouraged wards to do their own thing and to kind of help. 
We do know that records are limited, but they but it. Around 1858, there was over two dozen organizations that had formed some 12 Salt Lake City wards in uh, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, Spanish Fork, and Manta, Utah. These become the sort of formations of the Relief Society again. So it started with the Indian Relief Society, then it gets broken up to help with the Indians, and we start to see this these being codified. These women start working with their local bishop. Wart societies were not connected by a central women's leadership at this point. We do not have an Emma Smith running the organization. These women are just war to war to war. And they start engaging in similar activities like, you know, sewing clothing for the Indians. That becomes a theme. They really wanted to cover up the breasts of Indian women, apparently. Caring for the poor, um, especially all the immigrants that were arriving, and weaving carpets for local meeting houses. Uh, Ca- historian Carol Holland Drake Nelson documented the organization activities and membership of the Salt Lake City 14th Ward Relief Society. The 14th Ward included Temple Square and 11 residential squares to the south and west of it. This section would contain the homes of many church leaders. And among others, the Ward Relief Society role included names of Lenora Taylor, Jane B. Taylor, who were both wives of John Taylor, Elizabeth B. Pratt, Keziah D. Pratt, and Phoebe Sober Pratt, who were all wives of Parley P. Pratt. And a bunch of uh, Wilfred Woodruff's wives, Phoebe W. Woodruff, Emma Woodruff, Sarah Woodruff, Sarah Delight Woodruff, and Phoebe Ann Woodruff. Some of them were also daughters. What effect the Relief Society movement had on the Indians of southern Utah is impossible to know, but we do know that it sort of helped Mormons than more than it helped the Indian tribes at the time. It helped sort of organize and codify them, but it also helped Indian relations. Um, there was a Walker War going on, and Brigham Young was able to get these really dangerous Ute leaders that they feared to kind of join in with them because these uh, organizations were seen as helping feed feed the hungry Indians. We do know that it didn't last. Few male Indians grew up Mormon. Few adult Indians were effectively converted. They did not try to fit in. And Southern Paiutes who did try to fit in or were born in sort of like mixed homes suffered extreme culture shock. If they were from a mixed marriage, they would suffer greatly in Mormon communities. They would always be considered less. We do know that, again, these organizations kind of declined because of the Utah War in 1858. The Utah Expedition comes, uh, the government sends the federal troops in, and um, this absolutely just interrupts a lot of the work being done because a lot of the efforts now get focused on keeping the Gentiles out. And women are not so focused on the poor and outsiders of the Indians as they are protecting their in-group. Of course, these Indian Relief Societies had an effect because they got women organized to sew, make rugs, and do things like that. And so this does have Brigham Young see the potential for women organizing. He likes some organizing so long as it's under his direction. In December of 1854, he had them make carpet for the floor of the old Salt Lake City Tabernacle. And each ward got to furnish specific lengths and widths to a total of 771 square yards, which is kind of cool. They all kind of joined together and made the carpet. In December of 1866, coincident with the reorganization of the Mormon School of the Prophets, which had also disbanded, 
Young called one of his wives and former Nauvoo secretary, Eliza R. Snow, to reinstate the society in each community of Latter-day Saints. So he says, listen, we can, we brought back the School of the Prophets. We can bring back the Relief Society. You're going to be in charge, Eliza R. Snow, but under my direction. Aided by a circle of leading sisters, Eliza R. Snow supervised the founding of more than 300 local societies before her death in 1887. So Eliza R. Snow would make this, to a large extent, her life's work. She had a 20-year administration that saw the expansion of the society into vast areas. Under her direction, they would build Relief Society halls, establish cooperatives and commission stores, set up grain storage programs, build granaries, provide scholarships for women to attend medical schools and operated schools for nurse wives in the Intermountain area. They also operated a hospital, founded a newspaper, staged mass meetings to express their political views on political issues, and promoted women's suffrage. All of this would be done. Imagine a time when Relief Society would do these things. They cared not only about local matters, but national matters. I mean, and I would extend that to like, in this day and age, that's the equivalent to me of us getting together in our Relief Society wards, taking care of our wards needs, taking care of our community's needs, getting active politically, and then caring about something as big as like sex trafficking or something like that. I mean, it was just a great time to be in the Relief Society. Now, of course, when he organizes this, he does not give keys or he does not ordain the women, Um, but they still continue to receive priesthood power through temple ordinances. You know, the formal authority and priesthood keys would be lost to the auxiliary. It would not be the same since Nauvoo. As they're establishing these in every ward, the Salt Lake 15th Ward began to organize to help the poor. So in the Mormon Experience by Leonard Arrington, he talks about how the 15th Ward helps the poor. They have all this money left over, and so they pool their money that they had raised, and they actually build a Relief Society Hall. And Sarah M. Kimball actually laid the cornerstone for the hall and held a ceremony. So, you know, whenever we dedicate a temple and we always see the prophets with a shovel, picture Sarah M. Kimball doing this for the Relief Society Hall. Brigham Young would say in the April conference, quote, Now, bishops, you have smart women for wives, many of you. Let them organize female relief societies in the various wards. We have many talented women among us. You'll find that the sisters will be the mainspring of the movement, end quote. So, and then he lets Eliza R. Snow assist these bishops in getting this done. Women in, would help their bishops assist the poor by collecting and, and, and dispersing funds and commodities. They would nurse the sick. They cleaned homes. They sewed carpets and rags for local meeting houses. They planted and tended gardens. And they just promoted industry. Eliza R. Snow would be called the general president in 1880. She emphasized spiritual and self-sufficiency. And she would send women to medical school. She would train them to be nurses. They opened the Deseret Hospital, which was amazing. And oper- and they operated cooperative stores. They promoted the famous silk manufacturer. They saved wheat. Um, they did all kinds of things. They have the creation of the women's publication, the women's exponent, where we have so much great history. Emmeline B. Wells would su- succeed her and continued as the editor in 1914. This expands. This wasn't enough. Doing just release studies wasn't enough. Under Eliza R. Snow's direction and heeding Brigham Young's 1869 call to reform, they established a ladies' cooperative retrenchment association for the young women. It's basically the early young women department called the ladies' cooperative retrenchment. And then it morphed into the ladies' Mutual Improvement Association, which is now the young women. They also worked with Aurelia Spencer Rogers to establish the first primary association. So the women 
I mean, we don't talk about this, but it's the women that are organizing these things. It's the women that are setting up the big legacies that we have now in the church that have sort of, you know, been correlated and, and sort of disbarbed come from women. These women started these things. In March 1888, Emily S. Richards went to Washington, D.C., and she stood before the delegates of the First International Council of Women and reported the activity of 22,000 members of 400 relief societies in and out of Utah. She would say to them, quote, they own many of the halls in which they meet, and such property is valued at $95,000. They have laid up wheat and granaries to the amount of 32,000 bushels for seed or relief in case of scarcity. They assist in caring for the distressed, help to wait upon the sick, and prepare the deceased for burial. They have a biweekly paper called The Women's Exponent with a woman editor, women writers, women business agents, and women compositors. The Desert Hospital, with a lady medical doctor as principal and skilled nurses and attendants, is under their direction. They have fostered the silk industry, producing the raw material and manufacturing it into various articles. Some of their relief societies have stores for the sale of merchandise, particularly home manufacturers, as they encourage industry as well as intellectual culture. The entire organization is live active and a growing institution and its benefits are felt in every place where it extends all its tendencies being to make women useful, progressive, independent, and happy. End quote. And you can read the text of that in the Women's Exponent number 16 in April of 1888. Leonard Arrington claims that while obedience would be the theme of 1850s Utah, by the 1880s a new theme had arrived. Cooperation. He would say, quote, Gentile influence growing the Great Basin with the development of mining and the coming of the Transcontinental Railroad threatened to undermine the economic stability of the kingdom. The call went out to all hands, male and female. It is the duty of every man and every woman to do what is possible to promote the kingdom of God on earth, Brigham Young would admonish, end quote. You can read about that in the Mormon experience. Brigham would say, quote, We have sisters here who, if they had the privilege of studying, would make just as good mathematicians or accountants as any men. We believe that women are useful not only to sweep houses, wash dishes, make beds, and raise babies, but they should stand behind the counter, study law or medicine, or become good bookkeepers, and be able to do the business in any counting house, and all this to enlarge their sphere of usefulness for the benefit of society at large. In these following things, they but answer the design of their creation, end quote. And that's a great sermon he gave in the Journal of Discourses. It's interesting that, that Brigham would say that. We all often attribute all these like sort of misogynistic quotes to Brigham Young. And here he's saying, listen, women can do anything as good of men. I don't think it's because Brigham Young was a feminist necessarily, but Brigham Young was very practical. He knew that these women were good and he needed them. He needed them to be good. So he said, let's send him to medical school. Let's, you know, let's do these things. Early Relief Society meetings were generally held semi-monthly. One meeting per month was devoted to sewing and caring for the needs of the poor. So it was designated specifically for the poor. At meetings, members might receive instruction, discuss elevating and educational topics, and bear testimony. The women were also encouraged to explore and develop cultural opportunities for community. And stakes began circulating outlines for lessons by 1902. So we didn't get lessons, actual lessons, until 1902. The University of Deseret reopened in 1860 with 223 pupils, 103 who were women. We had a university for women. It was, it became very popular. Women were operating the telegraph. 
Two women were admitted into the Utah Bar in 1872, and several LDS women graduated from the Women's Medical College at Philadelphia in 1877. Let me let me tell you a sampling of what they did in the San Pete Stake, for example. San Pete is uh, where my family's from. I have a lot of family from Fountain Green and from Nephi. In 1879, they reported what they had done in a two- to three-year period. Quote, gathered 21,000 507 dozen eggs to use for charitable and philanthropic purposes, made 504 quilts, made five rugs and 3,633 yards of rag carpet, gathered 11,093 bushels of wheat, collected 111 books for their library, acquired four acres of land, manufactured 1,084 yards of cloth, donated $5,310 to temples, helped 399 families of missionaries, and sent 2,925 to missionaries in the field, made 52,550 visits to the sick, clothed and prepared for burial 299 corpses, built seven Relief Society halls, held two bazaars or fairs, built one co-op store, acquired shares in three stores, and two mills and one thresher, made 11,199 pounds of cheese, donated $5,965 to the immigration fund, spent $2,159 for surprise parties for the poor. End quote. That is just what one stake in Sampete did. That is incredible. That's so impressive. There were also new political frontiers opening up for women. Women were not allowed to hold public office at the time, but they were nominated for some. Ida Cook, for example, was elected school superintendent for Cache County in 1877, but wasn't allowed to hold the office because she was a woman. The Relief Society used what wheat they had stored in local granaries to to provide relief to victims of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906 and to relieve famine in China in 1907. And during World War I, they were super involved in food production, the sale of Liberty Bonds, sewing, knitting, bandaging, and making nursing courses for the Red Cross and in administering aid to the church members all abroad. They also ended up selling 200,000 bushels of wheat to the U.S. government to use for Allied relief. The first standardized lessons were published by the General Board in 1914 in the Relief Society Bulletin, later renamed the Relief Society Magazine in 1915. In 1919, the Relief Society Social Service Department was formed with Relief Society Secretary Amy Brown Lyman, named as directory. And she was someone that helped uh, commission this book that I was talking about earlier. They sponsored a six-week institute in family welfare work for 63 women representing stake Relief Society through the church. Eventually, 4,000 women would receive social work instruction. In dialogue, um, there's a review of the book Women in Covenant, and there's a non-Mormon University of Utah professor, Peggy Pascoe, and she said, quote, Common ground is something that has been rather short supply between Mormons and non-Mormons. Nowhere is this more true in the writing of Mormon history. Ever since news of Joseph Smith began to filter out of the small New York community in the 1820s and 1830s, there have been deep disagreements between Mormons and non-Mormon historians about how to tell the story of Mormonism. Relations between Mormons and non-Mormon women have been shaped by these dividing lines. But as the history of Emmeline B. Wells indicates, there have also been such times, such as the first two decades of the 20th century, when Mormon leaders emphasize what they had in common with women in 
the outside of society, in and outside of society. The LDS Relief Society is, I think, particularly interesting group, which to examine the history of conflict and common causes between Mormons and non-Mormon women. Despite its claim for uniqueness, the Relief Society had a great deal in common with more mainstream women's organizations of the 19th century. The 19th century Relief Society not only supported the central feminist demands of the period, they fought for the right to vote for women, supported suffrage earlier and more forcefully than many other non-Mormon women's clubs, but in the 20th century, the Relief Society found itself in a much different position. In the 1970s and 1980s, it was almost alone among women's organization in imposing central feminist demands of the period and the Equal Rights Amendment. End quote. So I think that that, that uh, quote is a really important one. We see in the early 19th century and um, at the very beginning of the 20th century, the Relief Society was really a feminist organization. They were in line with first wave feminism in a lot of ways. Of course, this plays into polygamy. Women and the government and Mormon men believed that if we gave women the vote, if we gave women the vote in Utah, they would vote against polygamy. And Mormon women at the time believed that if they were given the vote, they could vote for polygamy. Even though they were conflicting ideals, it still was based around the idea of women choosing, women having the right to vote. It was very feminist. These women organized. They created things. They presided. They came up with money. They came up with ideas. They ran so much of what the church is proud of today. Of course, like that quote that I read says, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we see a complete decline in that once the Relief Society power is taken and usurped by priesthood authority or by men. So once men become in charge of the Relief Society again, we see a whole backlash of uh, a movement away from feminism. You know, I heard a story recently at Sunstone where at the ERA meetings in the 70s, there were actual Mormon men on loudspeakers telling women over their little bullhorns, raise your hand for this vote, oppose this vote, say this, say that, and women would do it. Mormon women would do that. And I think that that would be appalling to women at the time because although they were moving under the direction of men's revelations, such as sustaining polygamy, even though it was difficult for them, they were very much autonomous. They were very much allowed to assess their own needs and work towards it. And we see when they did that, when they had less authority and presiding authority of men, they were working towards feminist ideals. But as they began to be correlated, they began to work more in line with the patriarchy, more in line with anti-feminist ideals, which I think is interesting to where it brings us today. So that was a long kind of convoluted history, but hopefully uh, it gives you some context into how polygamy has shaped this organization and in some ways still continues to shape it because we are affected by these choices. The Relief Society will never be what it was with Emma Smith, for good or for ill. But we have living legacies. We have so much potential if women were given more autonomy, as we see in the great, amazing accomplishments that uh, happened a 100 years ago. So I hope you enjoyed listening to another episode of the Year of Polygamy series. Uh, if you like this, please leave comments in the comment section. Correct anything that I got wrong. And... Um, 
please become a subscriber. That would really be a helpful thing, even if it's just five bucks a month or something, uh, so we can continue this series. And thanks again for listening to another episode in the Year of Polygamy series for the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.